40% of all the cigarettes smoked in the United States are smoked by people with a diagnosis of either substance use disorder or mental health disorder. 40%. 40%. Okay. And in, in most treatment programs, you know, the, the, the actual, what actually happens in treatment programs today isn't much different from what was happening 40 years ago when that medical director said, John, don't even think of quitting smoking for five years because your, your sobriety is more important than this cigarette addiction that you have. That was really the, the kind of the risk-benefit analysis. Uh, but as I said, I was smoking heavily, four packs a day. And even today, some 45 years later, my physician orders an annual CT scan because of the potential damage I did to my lungs back then. I did eventually quit smoking in 1978 at around the age of 25. Um, but I began to get interested in the fact that the alcohol and drug field was still kind of dragging its feet. And as you point out, Aaron, you know, you can tell where the AA meetings are any night as you drive around <laughs> the community because the, it's the sidewalk in front of the church with all the people smoking where the AA meeting is. This is still a big problem uh, for people in long-term recovery. So um, I, I got some funding to look at this issue and did some focus groups uh, this past year. Focus groups of people in treatment or in long-term recovery um, and found that, you know, for so many of us, the cigarette is integrally uh, tied in to our drug or alcohol use. It is not, you know, a kind of a byproduct or a side product. It is really right in the middle of it. As one of the focus group attendees said to me, uh, my addiction hits me in the face every morning when I wake up and have a cigarette. Yeah. Okay. My, my, my life as a person with addictive disorder hits me in the face every time I light up. And in fact, many of the people we talked to were actually in treatment programs. And they talked about how the treatment program regime, daily regime, all revolves around the cigarette breaks and where people are going to go for their cigarette breaks. I'm talking with John DeMiranda. Um, John is, uh, and he's been in the recovery industry for 40 plus years. He's in long-term recovery himself. And as we began talking, I have to say, this is one of the, the CCSAD virtual 2020 uh, speaker edition podcast. So welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. I'm your host, Aaron Huey. As John and I were talking before the show, he was... And I'm I'm I, I I'm smirking about it now, but he was saying I'm not sure this podcast is is so much for parents as it is for the you know the industry leaders and the and the people I teach and the clinicians and the and the counselors and stuff. And then he started talking about cigarettes, and I was like, oh my god! And we hit record, and we just you got it, parents. You need to hear what John is talking about because. It boggled my mind as I was going through recovery that what was expected of uh, this this group, these people who are spending all this time. And when I say expected, I mean it's the norm. It is it is the the casual concept of recovery that in the middle of the meeting, after the meeting, that that ultimately you step out for a smoke break or you drink coffee or both. And now as those monster drinks, as these, these sports drinks have come on, this stuff is filled with toxic chemicals, 
caffeine, and then we are putting, I have a, I have a medical manual from 1929, and it says, under the topic of nicotine, this is the single most poisonous substance on the planet. In 1929, people being trained as doctors knew this. So that's our conversation today. We're talking to John D. Miranda. This man, he uh, he he got his uh, B.A. in sociology, his master's in counseling and consulting psychology from Harvard. Uh, he is a professor at UC Berkeley. Uh, he's a professor in San Diego, and he is talking about his research into cigarettes. And I have a million billion questions in my head that I know my listeners, the parents of Beyond Risk and Back, are asking me in my mind right now. So, John. I could not, you could have not been farther from the truth. Every parent on the planet needs to hear what you have to say. So thank you for being on Beyond Risk and Back and welcome to the show. Okay. Um, well, one of the things that interested me early in my research around cigarettes is the fact that for people in long-term recovery, many of them die early because they're smoking uh, cigarettes, even though they're maybe decades away from their last drink or their last drug, they're continuing to smoke. And we now know that 15 to 20 years of life expectancy go out the window for a continuing heavy smoker. Interestingly enough, the two founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson right. and Dr. Bob Smith, they both died of smoking-related illnesses. They did not die eventually from cancer related to their alcohol use. It was their tobacco use that killed them. And this is what we're seeing more and more, that uh, people in long-term recovery really need to quit their tobacco use and not kind of adhere to this belief that somehow uh, quitting smoking is going to jeopardize their sobriety. I mean, this was the fear behind uh, that medical director of that treatment program that I went to 40 years ago saying, don't even think of quitting for five years. And his belief was that I needed to solidify and stabilize my alcohol use and the tobacco was an integral part of that stabilization and that's just hooey. All right, so let's let's talk about this because there there seems to be some 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 I don't want to say logic because we know this not to be true. Look, we children have been growing up with the posters on the school walls saying don't smoke since they were in kindergarten, right? We know that only 18 and that's still a high number, but 18% of people who start smoking in high school or middle school, continue into adulthood. So for all the kids who are smoking, only 18 is going to continue. But I imagine that not only your research is showing um, how uh, smoking jeopardizes recovery, but how is it a gateway drug? Let's let's ask that question first. Is is tobacco, is nicotine a gateway drug? Is this the first entry point that you see as a researcher of this into drug and alcohol use? Well, the research is pretty clear that the theory of the gateway uh, mechanism uh, really doesn't hold water. Um, that, in fact, if you, you know, the, the, the typical response to the gateway theory is, okay, you go out and pick 100, 100 people that drive motorcycles and you ask them, how many of you uh, drove a bicycle when you were a kid? Right. 95% are going to say yes. That doesn't mean that bicycles lead to motorcycle use. <laughs> Okay, that's a false, it's a false causality. But nevertheless, 
young people start with certain substances. They start with, you know, cigarettes, marijuana, and alcohol. Those are the three big ones for young people. I think uh, if we want to shift over a little bit to talk about prevention, I think that we often uh, approach prevention wrong. We don't approach it from the point of view that young people are going to take risks. They are going to experiment. That is what adolescence is about. And rather than say, well, don't do this and don't do that, or if you do this, it'll really be bad for you, we ought to be engaging them in managing their risk. And that's a taboo subject because that puts the parent kind of across the line. It's a, no, no, parents are supposed to be about just say no, about, you know, keeping an open, uh, an open channel of communication with their child, but also laying down ultimately kind of old-fashioned just say no uh, abstinence messages that drive the young person for the most part into um, risk behavior that they're not going to want their parents to know about. Okay. So, so this is what you and I were also talking about off the air is like, this is, this is an absolute whole, whole other show because we're the boy, that's a Pandora's box because a, we have an (laughs) expectation that parents are going to be connected at a level that they can teach the children how to manage risk and b the parents are managing their own risks. They're not coming home and modeling. I've had a hard day at work. So three glasses of wine and four, 14 episodes of whatever you're binge watching later, you're telling your kid to avoid risky behavior. And then even see risky behavior in adolescence is developmentally appropriate. So I, I'm, we're, we're, we're going to get into this one at a later okay. date. So, so okay. folks stay tuned because by God, both of these, let, let's, let's get back to the cigarettes because just as cigarettes you know, I, look, it has such an addictive, strong, attractive pull. And I can tell you what the teens in the facility say about cigarettes, but all of a sudden this vaping thing came along and it wasn't for me. I was in Jamaica and I was talking to a Jungian uh, archetypal therapist and I do a lot of lecturing on archetypal symbology and we were talking about chasing the dragon and we were talking about, uh, you know, the smoke being the transition between heaven and earth and all this type of stuff. But uh, what, what is it? Is it just the nicotine? Are we dealing with a subliminal archetype? Why, why do I see someone standing outside of an NA meeting? Do you be shivering their butt off <laughs> so that they can get a cigarette and they've already been eating cookies. They've already been drinking coffee there. This is an overstimulation. What is it about this? thing that keeps you using throughout recovery well you've you've touched on a bunch of a bunch of issues in those comments um and the whole vaping issue is is kind of separate and then the vaping and young people issue is kind of separate from that but let me let me uh, back up a little bit to talk about um the main lane of my work which is trying to get the addiction treatment programs to be more involved in harm to what's called tobacco harm reduction. Okay. If you run a treatment program today, or if you're in a treatment program today, you may have your cigarette use addressed on intake, but it's not going to really become an integral part of the treatment plan in most addiction programs. Okay. At, at best, you might be referred out to the American Cancer Society for right. some counseling. Right. 
and that most of the approach within the public health community when it comes to cigarettes is, again, complete abstinence, just say no, okay? It's what's called the cessation industry, okay? The public health, what comes out of the Center for Disease Control, what comes out of the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration is strict abstinence and just say no when it comes to tobacco. But the fact is that many people, especially people with a substance use disorder or a mental health disorder, they can't go to abstinence right away. They can't go to cessation right away. So we try and offer harm reduction alternatives that will allow them to decrease the risk. Okay, so let me, let me just pause here for a minute and tell you that within the United Kingdom, for example, the Department of Public Health supports electronic cigarettes because when a, when a smoker switches from, elect, from combustible tobacco cigarettes to electronic cigarettes, according to the Royal, Council, Royal Society of Physicians in the UK, 95% of the garbage that goes into the smoker's lungs stops. Right. The e-cigarette does not bring in all those toxic chemicals into the lungs. Uh, a noted researcher in this area once said, people smoke for the nicotine and die from the tar. So if you've got people switching over to e-cigarettes and no longer smoking combustible tobacco, you have a public health win. That's a public health success story. And apparently uh, we've got over a billion people in the, in globally that have made that transition away from combustible cigarettes to electronic cigarettes which are for the most part safe. And I'm, and I'm not gonna go into what happened two years ago when all the public health community went bonkers over the lung injuries of the young popcorn people. popcorn lung, yeah. That had nothing to do with e-cigarettes. It had everything to do with black market contaminated product that kids were buying on the street. The vast majority of those problems were associated with a black market, wow. which comes from prohibition, right? Okay, not from regulated products that the FDA uh, has had some opportunity to look at. So I, have- I just, just for the record, and and I, yeah. I don't think I've ever spoken to this to to the people who've listened to Beyond Risk and Back, but I was an off and on smoker since high school, sometimes daily, sometimes occasionally on special occasions. That always led back to daily use. It's been six years, and I stopped using e-cigarettes and vaping, where I just dialed down the nicotine until there was nothing left but the ritual, and then I addressed the ritual. But I had process, I had support, I had my my industry in place helping me. So I'm not, I'm in no way am I endorsing it. I'm, a, I'm just saying it worked. Harm reduction. Yeah. You, you used harm I reduction. used a harm reduction model and, and I have yeah. not picked up one in six years. Yeah. Well, this is what I think that the addiction field should be doing is when a person comes into treatment, there should be as much attention paid to their cigarette use as is paid to their drug use or their alcohol. Now, use. why don't they? This is the question because it, everything we've been saying since the beginning kind of kind of points to the ridiculousness of, of people trying to stop heroin or weed or alcohol or porn, but then they go outside and smoke. And, and the well, day is built around it, as you said. There are a couple of, I think there are a couple of factors here. One is the recovery culture that we've been talking about. The recovery culture kind of embraces tobacco use. I mean, let's face it, it it embraces caffeine use, it embraces tobacco use. And sugar use. These are are integral to recovery. Right. The other thing is, we have done to nicotine what we did to cannabis 20 years ago. 
we have totally demonized nicotine. And in fact, uh, I think what, um, well, in, in the podcast of yours that I was listening to, the speaker there talked about nicotine being a poison. Right. If you look at nicotine with a um, kind of an evidence-based eye, nicotine has more in common with caffeine than it does with heroin. Okay. Yet we, we even today are seeing prevention messages aimed at young people that talk about nicotine as a poison, nicotine as an addictive chemical. Those, those, the, the first is false. It's not a poison. The second is true uh, that it's addictive, but it's addictive in the way caffeine is addictive, not in the way that heroin is addictive. Right. Okay. So, and, and one reason, one proof of this is the fact that the Food and Drug Administration in the United States has for about 15 years approved nicotine replacement therapy, lozenges, passages, patches, et cetera, Gums, yeah. that, use it, that use nicotine. Right. Okay. Nicotine is used in those products to help titrate and modulate a person down off of a, uh, an addiction to cigarettes to, like you, in your case, right. being cigarette-free. So nicotine is not the, this kind of demon drug that it's made out to be. Another example of this is the product that's recently been approved by the Food and Drug Administration called SNUS, S-N-U-S, very similar to what we might call pinch here in the United States. Yeah. Now, SNUS is a way for a person to get a regulated um, amount of nicotine into their system, much like a cigarette or a couple of cigarettes would provide. And in countries like Sweden, the widespread use of snus has enabled the country of Sweden to reduce its cigarette percentage of the adult population from the high 20s to less than 5%. Wow. People still want their nicotine. They want their nicotine just like they want their caffeine. I mean, if you want to get me riled up, you take away my coffee in the morning. <laughs> I'm with you there. <laughs> uh, and, and so people use snooze or use e-cigarettes to get their nicotine hit, which does make people more alert, which in, in certain set and settings allows people to relax. I mean, nicotine is this funny, you know, funny right. drug that stimulates and, and relaxes at the same time. Um, but, you know, a treatment program that bans e-cigarettes along with, um, cigarettes is kind of throwing a, the bathwater, the baby out with the bathwater. Right. To you, you know, and that's what most treatment programs do. Most treatment programs today say, we're not going to really address your tobacco use. If you want to use, if you want to smoke, you go down to the pit. That was the name of the smoking area in the treatment program right. that I ran in San Diego. So after every group, there'd be migration out to the pit. Out People to the would pit. have their cigarette. They'd come back and go into group. That was how that treatment program dealt with it. And if somebody said, you know, I really want to quit cigarettes, we would refer them to the American Cancer Society for cessation counseling. Right. Not for harm reduction approaches, but cessation counseling. And we know that the, the person with a substance use disorder, the person with a mental health disorder, doesn't necessarily have all the kind of ego strengths to go into cessation right away. So why don't we do what we've done with drugs now for about 20 years and say, Hey, we can help you reduce. Come here. We can help you control. We do that now to get people engaged in treatment. 
in the hopes that in an outpatient environment, you know, they'll eventually say, you know, yeah, this is working for me. I think I want, really want to quit. Maybe you need to go into residential because it's not working, et cetera. We now use harm reduction as a treatment engagement tool in the drug and alcohol addiction world, okay? And it's been a long time and a big battle to get there. There was the initial demonization of harm reduction. Now there's kind of a grudging acceptance of it. We're doing the same thing with tobacco. We're saying only abstinence, only cessation will work. If you can't do that, you can't come in here. And in fact, we've had harm reduction activists in some countries and some states picketing treatment programs that have these smoking prohibitions because we don't need to be throwing up new barriers or more barriers to getting people engaged in opioid treatment. And tobacco bans do that. So there's a, there's a piece of what you're saying. And again, and again, I want you to hear the the parents and I want you to hear some of the clinicians, as I'm sure you've heard this before in the past, people in your audiences are listening to your lectures and lessons say there's a permissive nature that's coming across in what you're saying that, uh, kind of goes against the concept, at least the the inbred concept of recovery. I'm doing something bad that's wrecking my life and I can't stop. And now someone is saying doing it less is a good way to get through this. Aren't you still telling me that I can keep putting, and I'm going to use the term because again, it's, it's the term we're mm-hmm. raised with, poison in my body. Aren't you saying that, because you can't casually do meth, but you can casually drink coffee. You can't casually, for years I've casually smoked a cigarette only when I'm with this group of friends and only with them this, but it always led back to me every day again and justifying it and not liking the way I smell or feel and then feeling guilt and shame. And the way to relieve that is, so isn't there a permissive nature to what you're talking about? Well, I see myself as a public health worker first yeah and a member of the recovery community second okay okay and if you um are a methamphetamine addict and you transition to cannabis and stop using methamphetamine with my public health hat on that's a success it is okay and full stop okay and full stop it does not it does not mean that you must then eventually abandon your cannabis use and become totally abstinent. I don't need to go there. Many in the recovery field want to go there and justify harm reduction because ultimately they hope it will lead to abstinence. But there are many people that manage their addictions for a lifetime. Yeah. Okay. And seem to do, you know, okay. So that person, let's say, who was a methamphetamine addict, and is now using cannabis on a daily or every couple of days basis. To me, that's a that's a public health win because the methamphetamine was going to put them in the ground or in jail, and the cannabis use, especially in states now where it's legal, uh, is akin to the person who has a couple of drinks. So I think one of the other things I'm also hearing you say, which I want to agree with, and that I want to bring up a counterpoint, is that there is uh, a level of criminal activity associated with the, you know, meth, um, that, that it's not a, it's not a victimless crime. Like like, there's more things going on than just you getting your drugs and using them in in your basement. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, four days later coming down on a real hard crash, like society is paying for this one. 
so that is a part of the, the public health concept that I agree with. And one of the things about cigarettes and alcohol and now the cannabis industry, because part of what we're, we're experiencing here in Colorado, which yeah. was one of the leaders in the cannabis legalization. And let me be clear, John, I voted for the legalization of cannabis, being a cannabis addict in recovery, um, having to go full stop for my own safety, for the, the health and well-being of my daughter. My addiction was an all or nothing experience, mm -hmm. and I'm not good at managing this stuff. So that, but that's my own personal experience, but I recognize that it has health benefits. I recognize that decriminalization is a necessity. It's a moral imperative. And I am also on the front lines out here with these people who are fighting human trafficking and people don't know that it's happening in the cannabis industry and how prevalent it is in the cannabis industry. But to this point more, when we see cannabis manufacturers, cannabis growers sponsoring sports stadiums like the tobacco industry does, like the uh, alcohol industry does, is this just more of the same where something that used to be completely vilified now just becomes yet another thing that kids have access to that we can point to and say it's not that bad? And I'm not so much talking about the harm reduction. I'm, I'm talking about there there seems to be a thread, a feeling of a permissive nature when we name a sports stadium uh, uh, Oregon Cush, you know? And, and when you walk by a medical facility and it's, it's uh, you know, blunt medicine rather than, than being sold in a pharmacy just like other medicines. Um, but, but again, back to the cigarettes. I'm still wondering from you, is this... Are you are you trying to explore this new middle ground of you got to stop doing this, but you got to do it the right way because the vilification is creating the energy around and the desire. Where where are you in this? <laughs> well, you you've bitten off a lot on that one too. So <laughs> I'm on. sure we could. I would love to do multiple <laughs> a multiple series with you. Just quite frankly, it's I'm. This is a, this is a brilliant position, and I'm very. I know a lot of parents, and I work being a, from Boulder, Colorado. I know a lot of people who are standing where you're standing, saying there's a different way to do this. But parents are terrified of exploring the idea of experimentation and harm reduction because this is their kids, and you're standing on some strong evidence. Well, you know, we have to look at our history here, and. Um, for decades, we tried to put the genie back in the bottle when it came to cannabis. Great way, okay? great way of talking we, about it. Agreed. We kept saying, this is terrible. This will kill you. This will, you know. I mean, when I teach my course, Cultural, Social, Historical Overview, the first thing we do is we look at Reefer Madness, 1933. Sure. The movie that started it all. And in fact, many of the messages in Reefer Madness show up today when we talk to young people about about cannabis and drugs. Right. Um, so we tried to put the genie back in the bottle. That really didn't work because there are larger cultural trends and cultural forces taking place here. And, you know, that's happening with vaping. I mean, 15 years ago, right. electronic cigarettes did not exist. Right. Okay. And where did they come from? Well, they didn't come from the, the big bad tobacco industry. They actually came from consumers a man in China invented the technology for the e-cigarette because he was smoking a lot of cigarettes and he wanted something that was safer and healthier. 
Okay. So we've got about 10 years of research about e-cigarettes. We've got, you know, um, and that doesn't tell us much when it comes to young people and some of these other issues. Right. And we have these right. larger cultural trends that we, we can't necessarily fight against. The, the, the reduction in tobacco use in the general population is certainly to be applauded. Yes. What I'm concerned about is there is being there is no reduction in tobacco use among recovery populations and treatment populations. Does use and of I, tobacco in treatment increase the level of relapse? I mean, is, are we? Well, that, that was that's a good point. That was the conventional wisdom. You know, when I first took on this issue about 20 years ago, we looked at the research, and there was a lot of fear among treatment operators that if their facilities went smoke free, they wouldn't have any clients. Okay. Now, does this sound like the bars saying, if we go tobacco free, we won't have any customers? <laughs> well, they worked around that. Yeah. So we have bars that are full of people and they step outside to have a cigarette. Right. Restaurants, the and, same thing. If and you that's kind of what's going on yeah. with treatment programs. They're saying, we're not going to deal with your smoking other than to say, if you want to smoke, go down the block or go down to the pit. And if you want cessation counseling, go over to the American Cancer right. Society. What I'm saying and what we hope to develop this year in our second year of, of this project is tools for treatment programs to use to first of all, assess their organizational status quo in terms of tobacco policy. What are they actually doing when it comes to cigarette use? Are they doing an, a tobacco assessment like they do a drug assessment on intake? And does tobacco, uh, are people encouraged and is motivational interviewing used to encourage people to reduce or quit their tobacco use? And I, and I stress here, reduce or you or quit. Or quit, yeah. Okay. The conventional wisdom is the only, only quit counts. Now we're saying, no, we need, we need materials in the treatment realm that will talk about reduction as well as quitting. Okay. We also hope to create a couple of curriculum, one for addiction professionals to use to learn more about the tobacco consequences and the tobacco connection to drug and alcohol treatment. We hope to create a curriculum and maybe videos for treatment professionals to use in treatment programs with clients. These are the reasons why you should consider uh, quitting or reducing. Most of what's available, not most, all of what's available out there when it comes to um, smoking cessation does not have a substance use disorder spin or a mental health spin. We want to make these materials very specific to addiction treatment programs, to people with substance use disorder, to people with mental health disorders, so that they can kind of get it because it's in their language and it's using terms they know. Um, and takes into account the fact that their use of cigarettes are important and part of the culture of recovery. John, you know, you know. hang on just one second. We're going to come right back to you. I'm going to do a shout out to the platinum sponsors and the gold sponsors for CCSAD. We're going to come back and be able to wrap this around uh, some of these things you introduced. Um, and I got some more questions. You know, this is <laughs> this is fascinating. So hang on just a second. I, I'm folks. I'm just. I'm blown away by this. I'm blown away by this. This conversation, uh, not just not just about cigarettes and vaping and marijuana and stuff, but the harm reduction, and and 
Look, here's why these conferences are so amazing is because I get to interview these experts and I get parents who, you know, I, I can only interview so many people at a time and, and, and listeners have different perspectives. John's perspective is really opening a lot of questions and opening a lot of eyes. And I think there are, there are people listening who can say, this is, this is the type of thing I need to listen to. I need to follow up with John. When we go to these conferences, these mental health and addiction recovery conferences, like the CCSAD conference, all of us in the industry get to sit with all of us in the industry and learn from everybody in the industry. And it's phenomenal uh, because this is the cutting edge technology. These are the latest ideas. These are the provocative new directions of recovery and mental health. So to make sure these things are happening because during COVID we couldn't all be locked together in a hotel. Um, we're doing it virtually here in 2020, but there are companies, there are people, there are organizations, there are treatment centers who have still stood up and put forth some money, some time and some energy to see four events to put on this virtual uh, a conference. So I wanna give a huge thanks to the Platinum and the Gold Sponsors. Platinum Sponsors, High Watch Recovery Center, Mountainside, and the Guest House. Uh, these people put up the most time, the most energy. And uh, the Gold Sponsors, this is ARC Behavioral Health, ARK Behavioral Health, uh, BRC Recovery, Dreamscape Marketing, and Incredible Marketing. The, those are our gold sponsors. These gold and platinum sponsors step forward with the time, the money, and the energy to give to a company like C4 to promote, produce, and protect what's taking place at these conferences, which is the experts learning from the experts. And then C4 brought me on to make sure these experts get right into your ears. So again, thanks for listening. Let's get back to our guest because man, I got so many questions for John. Uh, John, thank you so much for standing by during that commercial piece. Um, okay. Where is the line of how many battles are you going to fight in recovery? I, I, I there's nothing you've said that I've disagreed with about recovery centers, um, tackling the cigarette smoking issue straight on, whether it's cessation, whether it's harm reduction, I work with kids. So whether these kids are smoking daily or not is irrelevant. They are not allowed to be in this facility and break the law. And we are not allowed to support that. That's a state rule. And ethically for us, I would never, ever put a cigarette in a kid's hand. So our kids come here, they've asked for patches, they've asked for gums, and the answer is no. When you're 18, you may do what you need to do with this stuff, but here it stops. So it's cold turkey at our facility and their kids. They don't have, they're not lifelong smokers, so it's uncomfortable at best. But you're dealing with people who've been smoking with for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, yeah. And they've got a drug use thing and they're supposed to come in and quit both. Isn't that uh, a pretty high tax on the system? The same reason why this medical professional told you not to worry about smoking, to keep smoking for five more years. It's, it's ridiculous sounding now, but the logic behind it is which hill are you going to die on here? Which battle are you going to fight? And isn't one enough in recovery? Well, the research is pretty clear that when people enter addiction treatment, they are open to addressing their tobacco addiction, but they don't get a lot of support for that. 
uh, I think one of the studies I've read something, something like 60 to 70% of people coming into treatment are interested in reducing or eliminating their tobacco use. And there's some interesting research about how this connects to their addiction, their drug and alcohol addiction, in that um, the conventional wisdom, as I said, used to be that somehow addressing the tobacco use was going to jeopardize a person's jeopardize, recovery. Right. The, the, reverse, the reverse, since we've been researching this, is just the opposite. Wow. That, in fact, there is a stronger case to be made for addressing tobacco as a way of creating a, a stronger foundation for recovery. And I think, think about it, because there's some, what, what researchers call cognitive dissonance, okay? Yeah, yeah. Somebody comes into treatment and they're told, we're gonna deal with your methamphetamine, but we're not gonna deal with this addiction over here called cigarette addiction right. or tobacco addiction. And that creates a certain cognitive dissonance in people that, Oh, yeah. Well, maybe I can do certain things, but not other right. things. Um, so addressing it directly uh, through the use of uh, medications or patches or harm reduction approaches or whatever, whatever you want um, is where we want to bring the treatment industry over time so that people coming into addiction treatment won't have their cigarette use compartmentalized and out of the picture. We want it to be in the middle of their treatment plan. Your, your statement is, and, and this, this is like one of those provocative statements that so far I'm enjoying the hell out of with you <laughs> is that, you know, when, when you're saying 60% of the people are, are actually saying that they're willing to look at their cigarette addiction as well, that now the, the continuation of cigarette smoking in recovery is not actually the problem with the with the cigarette smoker, it's the problem of the treatment center not actually stepping into the space of saying, we're going to do this, buddy, and you got it. We love you. We got your back, but we're going to do it. We're going to look at it all. And it, are, you, are you just getting out there and kind of kicking over the garden wall saying, you know, come on, let's do, we can do both? <laughs> well, well, yes. I mean, and the fact is that one of the big, uh, you know, barriers to addressing this is the fact that many of the people who work in the addiction community, you see where I'm going with this, oh many gosh. people that work in the addiction community are cigarette smokers. I mean, when I, when I approached, uh, we have a local recovery community organization here in, in San Mateo. And I approached and said, I'd like to do a focus group with your clients and with your members of the um, recovery community on cigarette use. The first reaction from the program director was, well, we have, we have probably a lot of our staff would like that too. <laughs> and, when we, and when we did, when we did focus groups, it was half treatment professionals and half, half staff uh, employees yeah. of the, of the agency of course. who are still smoking or, or and in a few cases they had stopped smoking. So they were very helpful to have in the focus group because they could talk about, you know, this is what I did and this is how I did it. And I was really struck, you know, when you, when you, when you enter a focus group or when you're setting up a focus group, kind of your fear is nobody's going to have anything to say or nobody's going to show up. Okay. Right. And we were building these focus groups as these focus groups are to, to, to learn as a researcher, to learn about your cigarette use and how it's connected to your drug use. Well, we had lots of people want to get into the focus group and we couldn't stop them from talking. And we <laughs> learned a lot about how integral the cigarette was 
to their meth use, to their drinking, to their lives, and to their treatment. Yeah. They were many of these people were in treatment, and they were talking about, oh yeah, you know, cigarettes is it's all we do is we talk about smoking in in our treatment groups. There, there is, and I know some of my listeners has heard me tell this this component before, but I want to say it again as we're wrapping around here to the end. Uh, we ask the kids, you, you, you have been growing up your, your whole school life in schools with posters on the wall that say, don't smoke. Uh, they tell you why they tell you the, the, the hazards, they tell you all this type of stuff. And yet here you get into junior high, high school and you start, why did you start? What is it about it? And this is what the kids say. They say, I hang out with my friends. I get to take a break and I go outside. Now, if I, if I was a counselor, if I was a therapist, pretty much 90% of my first tools and techniques that I'm going to give any client, a, a child, an adult, a couple, is going to be, here's what we're going to start doing. And I want you to do this on a regular basis, three times a day. I want you to take a break from whatever's going on. I want you to go outside. I want you to connect with a few people. And I'm going to add one more to that. I want you to breathe deeply. Now, I just described cigarette smoking. I'm breathing deep. I'm outside. I'm connecting with friends and everything. So why can't people just replace the one ritual with the hell cheat? Why is this? Why do our brains, why do the people, why does the industry convolute what is toxic and what is nourishing when it comes to cigarettes? What is this thing? Well, you, you, you went from talking about adolescence to the treatment industry. When you were talking about the adolescence, what I wanted to say is that, well, it's cool to smoke for a lot of people. It's cool to take risk. And we don't acknowledge that. We don't acknowledge that, you know, we, you know, if you take adolescent psychology classes, they talk about normative behavior. Right. And for years, we've tried to convince the public that alcohol and drug use among teenagers is not normative behavior. It's aberrant behavior. And you must do everything you can as a parent to stop it, to block it, to sanction it, to punish for it. Well, I take the view that drug experimentation is normative in adolescence, just like sex is, right? just like driving a car is. These are normative. And rather than get on that bandwagon, we've been fighting that bandwagon for years and say, no, no, no. Okay. Well, if we, if we really believe that it's normative, then we have to help these kids learn how to use these products and these substances, just like we theoretically teach them how to do sex Alcohol. and how to drive a car yeah. and how to do a lot of other things. Right, right. But we, you can't go there without getting demonized by other parents and by prevention professionals who will say, you're a bad parent for doing that. And I've been down there. I've been down that road. If we do another podcast, oh, I'll, we give are. Some, I'll give you some information about how we raised our son and some of the challenges and some of the things we learned in the process. Um, and one of them was don't tell the other parents or don't tell your friends that we know about this because they'll tell their parents and we'll get demonized. Wow. So, so now let's take that same thing where we've got the, because, because the conversation that I want to, that I want to wrap around here is how powerful 
is the ritual of smoking compared to oh. what you're saying is not a poison, but this nicotine thing that we're saying it's addictive, it's yeah. addictive, it's addictive. So's coffee, so's TV, so's pornography, but the ritual around cigarette, I take a break, I go outside, I breathe deep, I hang with my friends. I, there's, there's fire involved. There's smoke involved. There's like, like, is that it? Is it really just the well, ritual? And, and this, well, I think for people in recovery, it is. I mean, I think it, there's an extra component if you're trying to recover from an alcohol or drug uh, addiction and you are a smoker, that that ritual is tied to all of that, you know, kind of complex behavior. Right. That's why, you know, having, you know, some acceptance for e-cigarettes, it makes sense as opposed to bans on e-cigarettes, Okay. In Philadelphia, the behavioral health uh, programs there all banned tobacco and e-cigarettes. Right. People left treatment. People do, didn't go into treatment. And the harm reduction community said, oh, here you go once again, you drug people, <laughs> creating <laughs> barriers, creating barriers to care rather than embracing people to come in where they're at, where they're meeting at. them where they're at. That's huge. Well, if we really believe that, you know, we need to make some accommodation for people that come into a treatment program and have quit tobacco, quit cigarette smoking because they now use uh, an e-cigarette. Yeah. And, and we don't do that. We say, no, you've got to quit that too. In which case they maybe leave or they go back to smoking cigarettes, you know, on the sly. John, how do people get in touch with you if they want to follow up with you about this? Are you current? You, you've worked in every position yeah. in the treatment industry. What are you currently doing, and how can people connect with you directly? Well, we're about to um, launch a website. We're a couple of weeks away from that. Uh, it will be under the the name Peninsula Health Concepts. But probably the way to connect with me is directly through email, and that is S O L A N D A Solanda at sbcglobal.net. Solanda at sbcglobal.net. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. John, absolutely fascinating. I'm, I'm, I'm 100% into talking to you again just uh, okay. not just about harm reduction about cigarettes about marijuana all this with regards to adolescents and what you're telling about parents about how to get in the process with them but just incredible show thank you so much uh john d miranda say your email address one more time please s-o-l-a-n-d-a at sbcglobal.net solanda at sbcglobal.net john john demoran did you have a book out is there can people follow up by jumping to to read some of your writings um my website will provide all of that fair enough i'll be i'll be promoting that in a couple weeks fair enough perfect john i will definitely be in touch with you thank you so much for being on beyond risk and back okay aaron thank you it's been a lot of fun hang, (laughs) hang tight just a second all right. I, I mean, I love this. These types of things get me excited. I'm not going to say I agree with everything he's saying, but I can only speak from my personal experience of what I needed in recovery. And I know what worked for me doesn't work for me. I have family members who approach recovery exactly the way John is talking about. And it's important that what, what, what did he say? You know, uh, limiting access to care, meeting the client where they are. This is no different than your child. 
Like we, you can vilify whatever you want and it will only be to your own demise. Like you can turn somebody's God into your devil, but that's not their problem. It's yours. And that's, that's where I think John has really dialed into something here. And we need to hear from him again. I want to thank C4 events for taking the CCSAD, which we were all terrified we were going to miss, and making it virtual. Our platinum sponsors and our gold sponsors that I mentioned in the middle of the show, thank you so much. Uh, Also, to our silver and bronze sponsors as well. You guys made this happen. Thank you so much. I want to thank Deepin Productions for the uh, music and the uh, production of this podcast. They do great, great work. and Go to deepinproductions.com to learn more. And my guest, John D. Miranda. What What a great Great show. I'm so turned on by the show. I'm so turned on by uh, by the edgy nature of what recovery is. And you thought that being in the addictive process was was hard and confusing. Wait till you get really deep into the recovery process because there's a lot of ways you can do this. There's a lot of ways you can do it well. But the key is finding what's going to work for you, for your child, for your spouse, for your loved ones, whatever it is. Folks, remember, you take care of yourself first, your adult relationship second, and your children third, because in that way, you will do your best work for your children. Thanks for joining me on Beyond Risking Back. I'll see you next week.